Well, last weekend in September is a big deal, isn't it? There's lots going on. Now, for some of you here thinking, why is the last weekend in September a big deal? Uh, and, of course, that's because you uh, do not know the joy of football. Uh, the, the last weekend in September uh, is a big deal, especially if your team's in the grand final, like mine was last year, although I don't like to talk about it. There's uh, Brownlow Medal Night on the Monday, and there's uh, the build-up all during the week. There's uh, the final trainings, the selections, those who uh, get in, those who miss out. There's the team travelling to Melbourne. There's the grand final parade and public holiday on the Friday. Uh, and then the great moment comes uh, Saturday afternoon at 2.20pm uh, when the ball bounces and uh, the week's uh, build-up Ends. And of course it's been building for even longer than that really, but there's something special about that final week. Well, it's been a big week for Jesus. Such a big week, in fact, that we've spent three months taking our time working through the things that have happened as Jesus began this final week of his ministry. Jesus, way back in uh, chapter 12, which we looked at way back in January, can you believe it's already April, by the way, Jesus gets anointed and prepared for his death. And then, as we just heard in the kids' talk, he rides into Jerusalem, the humble king on a donkey, really that marking the beginning of this final week of ministry he's going to do in Jerusalem that's going to lead to him being arrested and killed over Good Friday. After his entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, Jesus has been preparing the disciples and getting them ready for this uh, huge transition that's going to occur for them uh, from followers of Jesus prior to his death and resurrection, to uh, then being the disciples and apostles who will be empowered by the Spirit and enabled to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he's done a lot of work teaching and preparing the disciples, you may remember. I just thought, uh, given we're kind of rounding off our series here, it's worth just refreshing our mind. You remember back in chapter 13, perhaps, how Jesus demonstrated the humble servant nature of his kingdom, shown in the, on, the, on the ride into Jerusalem on the donkey, now shown as he meets with his disciples and he takes the position of a, of a slave, washing their feet and calling them to be like him, putting the needs of others first, taking the place of the lowest and the least to serve your brother and sister in Christ. He predicts Judas' betrayal and Peter's denial, showing us how all of us are capable of the greatest of evil. All of us can fall short of God, and God knows, and yet he's still willing to die. He's still willing to go to the cross because we're all in need, even Peter, of God's mercy and forgiveness and restoration. In chapter 14, he comforted the disciples as they were becoming more and more distressed, thinking about the fact that Jesus might be leaving them. And he promised them the Holy Spirit both in chapter 14 and uh, in the early part of chapter 16 that we had read last week, promising them that 
Uh, it's good for him to go and, and that this next phase of the, the mission of God in the world is going to be outstanding uh, and, and going to be spirit-empowered. And then in chapter 15, he warns the disciples that even though he's going to be away with the gift of the spirit and holding on to his teaching, they can remain in him as he is divine and they are the branches and that no matter what the world throws at him, which he warns, maybe hatred and persecution, they are able to go on loving one another and demonstrating God's love for one another and for the world through sticking close to Jesus and asking for the Holy Spirit's empowerment. And now, as we come to the end of chapter 16, Jesus gives some final words of preparation for the disciples as he is about to go to the cross. And uh, what we're not going to get to is chapter 17, which we'll come to at a later date, where Jesus then does a sort of final set of prayers for himself, for his disciples and for all believers, before then the story of Easter begins to unfold in chapter 18 and 19 with his arrest and uh, death. So, what are these final words that Jesus has uh, as he's gathered with his disciples before he goes to pray. Well, once again, uh, as we've seen throughout this final week of Jesus's life and ministry, the disciples are concerned and sad about the thought that Jesus is going to leave them. And we understand that, right? That makes sense. Back in uh, earlier uh, part of our reading today, back in chapter, earlier part of chapter 16, uh, we read about this again. Uh, let me read from verse 5. But now I am, Jesus says, but now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things. The disciples are very upset. They're upset that Jesus is leaving them. They're no doubt upset by the words that Jesus has spoken to them about the difficulty of following Jesus in a world that hates him. And so Jesus wants to help the disciples to understand the next phase and, the, and, and what is going to be available to them as they uh, experience Jesus leave them, die and then rise again and send the Spirit. And we've already heard Andrew talk last week about the Spirit in the opening half of chapter 16, but now in this second half, Jesus reminds the disciples that not only will they have the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, as he's talked about in the opening half of chapter 16, but in fact, they will still have Jesus just in a new and different kind of way. Even though Jesus is going, he promises that he will still be with the disciples. Take a look, verses 16 to 22. Jesus went on to say, "'In a little while you will see me no more.' Then, after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father? They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come 
But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time for grief, but you will see again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Yes, Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. It's going to be painful. You're right to be upset. But short-term pain will lead to long-term gain. And Jesus illustrates this idea with the image of childbirth, which I'm sure all the women in the room who've uh, experienced it would describe as short-term pain for long-term gain. Maybe not. I don't know. Jesus went there, so I had to go there too, right? Uh, It's a beautiful thing, childbirth. I've only experienced it secondhand, but up close. And I need to be careful what I say in order that I can return to my home after this sermon. But in childbirth, you do sort of instantaneously forget about all of the things that happen before when you're holding your child. And you are filled with a deep and unspeakable joy. And Jesus says, it's this kind of thing that is going to happen for you disciples. Now, there's some debate as to when it is that the the, that Jesus will return to them exactly and what Jesus is referring to and what will give them joy. Obviously, in the first instance, he is referring to that period between Good Friday and Easter where Jesus dies and they think the whole thing's come to a sad and sorry end. And then on Easter Sunday, he rises from the dead and they see him. But there's a sense too uh, that scholars argue and some big name ones at that, that actually this scene of Jesus is not just something that the disciples saw when Jesus actually physically rose from the dead, but that they continued to see as Jesus worked powerfully by his spirit through them in the establishment of the church, uh, which continues to this day. The resurrected Jesus can be seen and known not only by the first disciples who saw him rise from the dead, but in fact, by all of us who see and know him through faith, through seeing him work, through us and through our brothers and sisters in our church. The joy of Jesus' resurrection, the joy of his death-defeating victory on the cross and his powerful work in us and through us, that is a deep and abiding joy that no one can take away. It doesn't matter what happens to us, Jesus has won. He's victorious. He's real. He's alive. The disciples will have Jesus forever, as do we. And that joy of seeing him rise victorious from the dead is a joy that no one can steal away. But not just that. Jesus will also provide for and be with his disciples through prayer. Take a look at verses 23 to 28. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. 
Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming and when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. You see, when Jesus leaves his disciples and he goes to the cross and he rises again, he ascends into heaven, he sends the Spirit, the, the, the relationship that the disciples have with Jesus is turned on its head. It's changed fundamentally how the disciples relate to God. As, another scholar, as a scholar points out, up until this point, the disciples have brought their requests and, uh, uh, and questions directly to Jesus. They've got a question about something, and Jesus is right there, and they go, hey, Jesus, what's going on? What, what about this? What does this mean? What do I do about this? What does God think about this? And Jesus would tell them. But with his going away, the, the terms of the relationship that the disciples have, both with Jesus and the Father, are changed. By Jesus' death on the cross and rising to new life, he enables uh, the disciples to approach God directly, still through Jesus, but in a completely new uh, and more profound way. The disciples are able now, because of the victory Jesus wins, to go with confidence to the Father through Jesus. It's not just straight to Jesus, it's now to the Father through Jesus. And that's an important change for the disciples, an important change for us. We pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. And we see as Jesus teaches about it there in those verses, 23 to 28, uh, it's, it's not a magic formula. We shouldn't hear Jesus saying, um, pray to the Father, tack my name on the end, and whatever you put in the middle, uh, you get. So Jesus isn't saying, as long as you say, dear Heavenly Father, insert prayer for your own riches, in Jesus' name, amen, you get it. You don't get to put whatever you like between dear Heavenly Father and in Jesus' name. He's not promising self-help promotional prayer systems. Rather, he's promising that as you believe in the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection for your sins, as you receive the Holy Spirit, as you have the joy that can never be taken from you of knowing his resurrection and his presence in your life and in the life of the church, then as you pray, you're going to pray prayers to the Father in the name of Jesus, seeking his glory and his kingdom. Prayers shaped by the prayer Jesus taught. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation. Prayers like that that Jesus hears and answers as we pray to the Father constantly. And so I just want to stop and ask you, what have your prayers been like lately? Because it can be the case that sometimes our prayers become shallow wish lists with Jesus' name tacked on at the end instead of an overflow of our deep and abiding relationship with God the Father through 
Jesus. Uh, I'm doing some professional development at the moment on prayer. It's a good thing to get professionally developed on when you're a minister. And I've, I've learned a lot already. I've only had one session. One of the... I, I, could, I had to pick which bit of excellent advice I wanted to share with you today uh, because there's lots and you can ask me about it later. But some really good advice I got recently when thinking about how I pray was that the Bible gives us such rich and deep words that one of the best ways to pray prayers that God loves to hear through Jesus is to take whatever it is you've read from the scriptures and to pray it, to just turn the words of scripture into your prayers. One, because that's going to make a really great prayer that God's going to love to answer. But two, because it also helps us to understand what the passage is about, because if we've got to figure out how we're going to pray about it, then we're going to figure out what we need to do about it. I was also challenged to think about whether all my prayers are, dear God, please help me to trust you, or they're actually more relational, the kind of prayers that actually Jesus is inviting the disciples to here, Heavenly Father, I trust you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Subtle difference. But the disciples and us, we have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus himself. We have access to the Father through our prayers. And Jesus' final words remind the disciples that this is all because of what Jesus has done or in their case is about to do. Verses 29 to 33. Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you don't even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming, in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a funny little piece of scripture because it shows us uh, how long it take, it's taking the disciples to really understand who Jesus is and, and, and what, uh, he, he, he mean, what it means for him to be the Messiah. The disciples, you know, are confident. They say, you're speaking clearly without figure. We, we can see that you know all things. Why do they say that? They say that because Jesus has preempted their question. But like, these are the disciples, right? Jesus has raised people from the dead. He's healed the blind. He's, he's, he's healed the sick. He's done all sorts of things that they've witnessed. And now they're like, oh, wow, you just uh, understood what I was saying. I believe you must be from God. And Jesus like, really? Like, this is the thing? And of course, he knows that in a moment when he's taken and arrested and hung on a cross that belief that he's from God is going to be fleeting as they run and flee for their, own, for their lives and for their safety. Even though the disciples' faith is kind of half-hearted, they're slow to figure it out, and we should be greatly encouraged by this, right? Like if it took the disciples that long, 
you know, don't worry too much about where you're up to. You're on a journey with God and let me encourage you to keep going. Jesus, as he prepares to face his death, knowing his disciples will desert him, knows that he will never be alone because the Father is with him. He may be deserted, he may be killed, but he will overcome the world. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, death is defeated, sin and Satan are overcome. And the disciples, uh, they're going to face more trouble. There's not just the trouble of seeing their leader captured and killed on Good Friday, but as Jesus rises from the dead, as he sends the Spirit, most of the disciples went on to live lives as martyrs, killed by the Romans for following Jesus. And yet they had a joy that could never be taken away, for they knew they shared in Jesus' victory over death. And we share in that victory too. In fact, the thing that matters more than anything else in this life is your sharing in his overcoming of the world on the cross. For not even death can steal that from you. I love verse 33 of John 16. You know, like there are some Bible verses that you just really love. This is one of those ones. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. For me, that sums up my life as a Christian. God has given me his word, and in it I find peace. And yet, it's so easy as I go about life in this world to forget, to run into different troubles, to run into different conflicts and persecutions. And I come back to this verse, remembering that Jesus has overcome the world. Take heart, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. Jesus' teaching helps me make sense of this world. It gives me peace in my troubles. And when I face difficulty, as I'm reminded of Jesus' words to his disciples, it helps me not be shocked and sidelined that things aren't going perhaps as easily as I would have liked, but that this is what Jesus promised, a troubled life. And yet, he has overcome the world. No matter how hard life is, no matter how difficult, we are called to obedience, to following Jesus, to trusting him, even when we're threatened with death, as the disciples were, because we know that we share his victory. Jesus has overcome the world. And if you believe that, it's the key to unlocking everything. Jesus has overcome the world through his death and resurrection that we're going to celebrate next week. Do you believe it? Because if you do, you will have a joy, like Jesus promises the disciples in our reading today, that you can never lose, even in the troubles of this life. Take heart, Jesus says.
I have overcome the world. Amen. Amen.